And gracious God, I pray now that you would help us to be attentive by the power of your Holy Spirit to you and to your scripture. God, I pray that as my words line up with your words, that they would fall on ears and hearts ready to receive them and respond. And God, if I say anything that isn't from you, I pray that those words would quickly be forgotten. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the priests here at Truro. And as magnificent as Mary's Magnificat is in Luke, this morning we're going to be looking at our Old Testament reading in Micah chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me there, or if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. There are Bibles in your pews. Micah chapter 5 is towards the end of the Old Testament, or if it's a pew Bible, page 779. We'll get you there quickly. Of course, Google will get you there quickly as well. And as you're flipping there or as you're searching your way there, I'd like to tell you just a bit more about the context of these verses. Now, Micah prophesied during the late 700s as both the northern and southern kingdoms of, kingdoms of Israel were slowly being overrun by the Assyrian Empire. There were a series of bad kings in both kingdoms and faithless religious leaders, and things were slowly falling apart for the Israelites. Things were bad, and they were going to get significantly worse before they got better. Before too long, the Israelites would be completely overrun by their enemies, conquered by oppressive foreign powers, and many of them would be carried off into captivity. The great hope and promises of their forefathers seemed to have been forgotten and abandoned. Abraham, who'd been promised by God that he would be the father of many nations and that the whole earth would be blessed through him. David, who had been promised that his ancestor would sit on his throne forever. It seemed like these promises were awfully far from being kept much less fulfilled. I guess you could say things were not going as planned or expected for the Israelites. And God seemed awfully far off. And his people are left waiting and hoping. Have you ever felt like that before? Like things haven't gone exactly as you had planned or expected and you're left just waiting? Now, if you're a fan of the Washington football team, you certainly know what that feels like, although maybe at this point you've come to expect it. Maybe you've experienced this recently with your travel plans. I know for us, my family had big plans. Later this week, we we're going to drive to New York City for the day. We we're going to take our kids to the Rockette Christmas Spectacular. We got an email yesterday that the Rockettes have been canceled. Omicron outbreaks all over New York City. And alas, our plans for this week off canceled. Everything that we had planned and expected, how this week was going to go, with grandparents in town and, you know, kick lines, all of that needs to be reimagined. Maybe your career hasn't gone quite as planned, or your retirement. Maybe your marriage hasn't looked as you expected. Maybe you or someone you love has gotten sick. Or parenting seems to have taken a left turn. Or your finances. 
in your life or part of your life just doesn't look like you had hoped or imagined it would. This is the context into which Micah preaches these verses in chapter 5 that we read today. To a people who found themselves looking around, wondering, this is not how things were supposed to go. To a people waiting for God to intervene. These verses are full of declarations regarding God's character, his promises. They're reminders for God's people in a season when God feels absent and nothing looked the way it's supposed to. And they're reminders for us too. Affirmations regarding God's ways and his character for us to cling to when life isn't going as planned or when God feels far away. Now, God's people, chapter 4 tells us, are surrounded by enemies on all sides. Nothing is going as planned. In fact, it seems that all is lost. And then Micah declares these words. Look with me, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who were little, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. From ancient days. Now we're going to unpack this in just a bit, but first, hear this truth this morning. God does things his way, and God keeps his promises. God does things his way, and he keeps his promises. Now, Bethlehem was a small town, seemingly insignificant, except that it was also the town from which Israel's greatest hero was called, King David, who established a line of kings in Israel. David's line, though, at the time of Micah had been reduced to broken, fearful, power-hungry men. And before too long, there would be no king from the line of David at all, as both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel would fall to invaders, just as Micah and other prophets foretold. And yet here in verse 2, we see a promise, a promise that one day, one would come forth from Bethlehem a king unlike other kings. This is God's way, to come by way of a small town, home to a small clan of a small nation, far from the world's seats of power, to come by way of a broken line of broken men, by way of disgraced and fallen kings, but to come by way of a promise he made and will keep. I want you to imagine with me just for a moment. You're an Israelite at the time of Micah. You you know the promise God's made to Abraham, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and that through him the whole world would be blessed. And you know the promise God made to David, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. But you've had a series of bad kings It looks like you're about to be overrun by the Assyrians. You're surrounded by enemies on all sides. David's kingly line has been reduced to a mere fraction of what it was before. Can you imagine what that might have felt like? It's into that confusion that Micah speaks, reminding God's people that he can be trusted, that he keeps his promises, That there is one whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The promise of a future king, a light 
in the darkness. We were 25, and I was in my last year of seminary when Jenny became pregnant with our oldest son, Aiden. And we had a plan. We had a plan for how this was going to go. And Jenny had done her research, she had pictured it, and she had decided that we were going to go for a natural birth, right? No medicine, none of the, like, no epidural, any of that stuff. And so, like some of our friends had before, she signed us up for Bradley classes where we could learn how this was going to go. And interestingly enough, I think she may have planned it this way. The first week of Bradley classes, Jenny had to be out of town for work. So she sent me by myself, okay? I'm 25, it's a Saturday morning, and I show up at this Bradley teacher's house. There are only four couples in the class, so it's me and three other couples by myself. And we proceed to spend two hours practicing and learning while I, it's the most awkward experience maybe of my entire life. And I fundraised, and still, it was excruciating, but I knew we had a plan. Jenny had a plan. She knew how she wanted this to go, and so by golly, if it means I have to go to a birth class by myself, I'll do it. Those other couples must have thought I was crazy. And so we go to all of these classes, we feel like we're prepared, right? We're all set, labor comes, and I learned in the class that that when, you know, you start to feel the beginning of labor, it's important that the husband gets some rest because there's not going to be a lot of rest. So Jenny begins laboring, I go to sleep. (laughs) It's not how it went for our next two. (laughs) A couple hours later, she wakes me up. She says, I think it's time to go to the hospital. We've got our bag packed. We've got our plan. We've got our, you know, birthing ball and our robes and everything else and we get to the hospital and they check us in and we start laboring and the nurse says do you have a birth plan and we say yes we've got a birth plan here's the birth plan it's like three pages long the whole plan this is how it's going to go right we're not going to do any medication we're doing this on natural and the nurse just kind of looked at us and said okay and so we did for a couple hours (laughs) and then it became clear that yes jenny was in labor and it was back labor Okay, so Aiden was sunny side up, and it was excruciating for Jenny, right? And I'm just doing the best I can to help her stick to the plan like they told us. They said, when you're in the moment, it might be challenging to stick to the plan, but this is husbands, you got to know the plan. It's your job to encourage and help them stick to the plan, and so that's what I did. I asked good questions, I rubbed her feet, I helped her stick to the plan, it's going to be okay. Before long, it became clear it was not going to be okay. And it was not going to go as planned. Any of you had a birth, women, or I guess, you know, a birth experience like this? It becomes increasingly clear that Aiden is under some distress. His heart rate is dipping in between labor pains. We've tried what you can try to flip him around. That's not working. And so the doctor begins to prepare us that things were not going to go as planned, Right? And so we did what you do in these situations. We rushed into an emergency C-section. Jenny's on the table, you know, crying because she had imagined that the birth was going to go a certain way, and here it is, not going that way. Praise the Lord that not too long later, I held an eight-pound, nine-ounce boy, healthy as can be in my arms. It doesn't always work out like that. But there was those hours in between of confusion. We had a plan, right? It was supposed to go like this. Why is it not going 
like that. And I remember at 25, worried about my baby and worried about my wife and worried about what could happen. Micah speaks into the confusion and the fear and the darkness to a people for whom things have not gone as planned. He says, God will do things his way, but he can be trusted. He keeps his promises. He hasn't forgotten. The Messiah will come. And he'll come by way of a small town through a broken line of fallen men, the most unlikeliest of kings. That being said, God keeps his promises on his own timeline. Look with me at verse three. Therefore, Micah says, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Sometimes when things aren't going as planned, trusting in God's timing is the hardest part. Trusting in God's timing is the hardest part. For Israel, it would be another 700 years before the Messiah would come. 700 years! And in between, look at this with me, Micah says God would give them up until the time. In this in-between time, God would give his people up. They would be carried off by their enemies into captivity until it was time. Wait, what? Conquered? Carried off into captivity? But what about these promises? They would wait and wait and wait, wondering the whole time whether or not God had forgotten them or abandoned them. But Micah's clear in the second half of verse 3. The time would come when she who is in labor would give birth. And you're, you're looking at a Bible. This is the second half of verse 3. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The time would come when God would fulfill his promises, when the Messiah would come and he would gather God's splintered and fractured people back to God. But it would be in God's time. He is, after all, God, not you or me, which means he gets to set the timeline as challenging as that may be for us. And here's the thing I think God wants us to see in verse 3. God is always on time, and he is never late. God is always on time, and he is never late. Look, I don't know why it took so long for God to send his son. And I don't know why it's taken so long for Jesus to come back. I don't know why it's taken so long for God to answer some of my prayers. And the Lord knows I still have hopes and dreams, big and small, that I'm still waiting on. I don't understand God's timing. None of us do. And that's because, to use a colloquialism, he's playing chess when we're playing checkers. We don't see the whole board just a tiny fraction of a brief moment in time in one particular small place while he sees the whole kitten caboodle. Allow me to use one example from the Bible. Just over a week ago, Jamie and I presided at a funeral for Debbie Lynch. Debbie had been a member here at Truro for years, active in a community group and the choir, and it was a privilege for me in the last year and a half to get to know her a bit. She loved Jesus, and she loved 
this church and she lived a good, rich life. Now, the gospel that her siblings picked for her funeral was John chapter 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the great pronouncement of many of our funeral services. And the context of that wonderful pronouncement, if you know your Bibles, was the death of Lazarus. It's the death of Lazarus. Here's, here's the story. Mary and Martha are Lazarus' uh, sisters. And they're all three of them dear friends of Jesus. Lazarus falls ill. Mary and Martha run to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, please come quickly. Our brother is ill. Now, if you know your story, you know that Jesus tarries. That he doesn't, in fact, go right away. Instead, he sticks around. He stays where he's at for another two days. They're pleading with him to come. And he says no. When he does come, finally, two days later, it seems that he's too late. Lazarus is dead. And Mary and Martha say, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother, your friend, wouldn't have died. Jesus turns to them and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then Jesus weeps for his dead friend. Only then he calls Lazarus up out of the tomb. It seems to everyone that Jesus was late, that he was too late. But that's because they were only seeing their sick brother and friend. They had no framework for resurrection. They could only see or imagine the little bit that was right in front of them. But God's vision, his plan is so much bigger and more wonderful than we could possibly imagine. He sees resurrection when all we see is illness and death. And we have no context for it. And so we might not always or even usually understand why God's timing is what it is. But Micah encourages us to believe that God is never late. He's always right on time. It seemed like Jesus was late to his friends. No. He was right on time. That being said, it's rarely on time the way that we expect. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Micah says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the promise for a Messiah who will be a shepherd, who won't rule the way that others rule, but will care for his people and don't miss this, in the strength of the Lord. And again, in the next line, he will do it in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The promise is for a king who will do things the Lord's way. In the majesty of the name of the Lord, in the strength of the Lord. Friends, this stands in sharp contrast to the way Israel's kings operated at the time as they sought their own glory and their own good, their own power and self-preservation. History is rife with men and women who lived and live that way. But not so with the promised Messiah. He will do things God's way for God's glory. Not only for God's glory, Micah says, they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Do you hear that? When the promised Messiah comes, he'll come in God's way. 
in God's timing, for God's glory, but he'll also come for our good. He'll come so that God's people will know peace and shall dwell secure in a world of warfare and brokenness, confusion and darkness, hatred and hurt, not because they've earned it or fought for it or deserve it or claim it. No. God's people will know peace. We will know peace because God shall be made great to the ends of the earth and he shall be our peace. God gets the glory and it's for our good. It might not look as we expect or come in the timing we expect, but God's way, God's glory, it's for our good. Now, as we land this plane, I'm going to preach for my, to myself for just a moment, if that's okay. Here's the truth. When things haven't gone as planned, or as we imagined they would, I know I need to remember that God does things his way, that he keeps his promises, even and maybe especially when I don't like it. And though I may be left wishing he would just get on with my plan, I need to remember that he does things on his timeline and that he's never late. And I need to remember that God does things for his glory, but that he also does them for my good, even when I can't see it. God's way, God's timing, God's glory, all for my good. But here's the main thing that I need to remember. All of this, God's way, God's timing, God's promises, God's glory, my own good, they're all wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus is really who this passage is about. Jesus, the promised Messiah, the king from Bethlehem, the one who is the way and the truth and the life, the one who is never late but came right on time to ransom his people from darkness and sin and death and who promises in God's timing to come again. Jesus, the good shepherd who takes care of his sheep in the strength of the Lord, who in his death and resurrection not only makes our peace but becomes our peace, giving us in his grace unearned, undeserved the security of eternal life. Jesus, who is the name above every other name, Emmanuel, God with us, King of kings, Lord of lords, our Prince of peace. And so, yes, I absolutely, 100% need to trust that God does things his way, that he keeps his promises. And yes, I need to choose to believe that his timing is perfect, even and perhaps especially when I don't understand, which frankly, is most of the time. And yes, I need to choose to trust that all of this mess is for my good and for God's glory. But even more than that, or perhaps just more simply than that, I need to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, the Messiah, the one to whom Micah points the author and perfecter of our faith, the good shepherd who goes before us and in whom is found the fulfillment of all of God's promises. May his name be praised. Will you stand and pray with me? Gracious God, we give you praise.
we worship you this morning. And we do pray, God, that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, to trust your goodness, your promises, your timing. But even more than that, God, would you fix our eyes on your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.